Welcome to Engineering Career Journeys, brought to you by Australia-wide Engineering Recruitment. This is a podcast series where we interview prominent senior engineers from across Australia and delve deeper into their career journeys and how they got where they are today. We hope that this will inspire and assist up-and-coming engineers in planning their own careers. Now over to your host, David Armstrong, General Manager of Australia-wide Engineering Recruitment. Welcome to today's conversation with Jefferson Harcourt. Jefferson, shortly after graduating as an electrical engineer, created and started his own company, Gray Innovation. Nowadays, the Gray Innovation group of companies commercializes new technology drawn from leading hospitals, universities, and other research organizations, whilst focusing on medical devices and other technologies, which makes the world a better and safer place. Recently, Jefferson's company have stepped up and impressively assembled a consortium to locally produce invasive ventilators as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Jefferson has over 20 years of experience in the development and commercialization of cutting-edge technology and the creation and operation of technology companies. He's established commercial operations both here in Australia and many overseas, building both R&D and sales entities. Jefferson sits on multiple company boards and on the Victorian Government Innovation Task Force, helping to shape policy around the technology and advanced manufacturing sector. Thank you so much, Jefferson, for agreeing to join us today. And I'm very excited to hear about your career journey. Thank you, David. No, pleasure to be here. Great. Thanks, Jefferson. What originally interested you to become an engineer? I think I was one of those, you know, we, we might say now fortunate, but uh, perhaps one of the uh, ones that uh, were, were selected by the uh, the knack, you know, I was pulling everything and anything apart from the earliest age. You know, I remember getting in lots of trouble from my parents for pulling everything that uh, I could get my hands on apart. I had a screwdriver in my hand before I was walking. So, you know, that's sort of how it started. And how could you be anything else? And I was just fascinated by how things worked, why things worked, you know, had a tremendous satisfaction about building things. So I was uh, stuck. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, what a wonderful thing to study first. Yeah. What no one really spoke to me about then was that, look, you know, you, you study something. It doesn't define you for life. No one did a stockbroking degree. There's no such thing. And what a wonderful and flexible grounding degree to begin with. And I'm very proud that I went through that. And it's a hard degree. You know, it's a hard thing to be. You can't fake an engineering degree, and it's not just about having a good memory. You know, it's sort of self-selecting for people whose brains work. And then you can go on, do many other things, and uh, many people do. More CEOs running ASX-listed companies who did engineering as their first degree than any other degree. More billionaires on the planet who did engineering as their primary degree. You know, it's a great degree to do. If you wish to proudly call yourself an engineer for the rest of your days, do so with your head held high. But, of course, you can do anything pretty much, except dance. <laughs> well, yeah, that's just my experience. So it was a real passion of yours? It was, yeah. I just wanted to build things. And then, uh, of course, I, I started to look behind that as, uh, as I began my journey as a professional engineer and looked at how, you know, how do these projects work, how do these companies work, who funds them, who benefits, you know, who, where does the profit go? And then I thought, well, okay, I want to be involved in more than just the, I guess, the technical side of it, not because I didn't love the technical side, but because I wanted to make sure that we could control that journey and do our job properly. 
really, if you will. I wanted to get closer to the funding, not to get more money, but to be able to make sure that I was properly funded and I could work with both arms in front of me instead of having them tied behind my back. You know, so that was really what got me going on down that path. Sure. So the other drivers for you that made you create your own company, what, what were those? Well, you know, I was very fortunate as a student to get a job as, you know, work experience out at Robert Bosch, which is an amazing business. In fact, Bosch uh, came in and helped us with the ventilator program, did an exceptional job. And so, you know, we still have a relationship to this day. And it was, again, a very privileged uh, opportunity for what experience for me because the Bosch had integrated design and production at scale out of Clayton, which is really unusual for Australia, particularly over 20 years ago. So we had the engineers designing electronics on one level and downstairs, very high-tech factory producing these things, and they'd be exported up to Germany. And, you know, what I noticed was, firstly, I was living on St Kilda Road. You know, I like a, I'm a sort of Paran, Richmond inner city guy, and I, uh, I understand why Bosch is out there, but I didn't really want to work out there, to be honest. And the barbed wire fence was always a you know, interesting way to start your day. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I don't want to begrudge Bosch. They need those sorts of things there, although they have dramatically upgraded their facilities now. It's amazing. Uh, but back then, it was very, very basic manufacture sort of environment. So, you know, I, I wanted to be in a place that's a, a fun place to work in terms of, you know, a cool suburb, if you will, good coffee. No uh, international roast, you know, <laughs> wanted a latte. And I also wanted to design products right from the start all the way through. And again, back then, that wasn't readily available. You, you'd normally, as an engineer, perform part of a, a team. You'd, you'd design part of something. I wanted to be the next Bang & Olufsen back then, you know, and design a whole product and see that out there. So that's what I started Grey to do, to design a product that was going to look great, be something that uh, I could uh, see all the way through and see on a shelf and be able to say, oh, you know, we did that. You really wanted to create your own destiny. Yeah, yeah. And I'll be you know, very blunt, the pay didn't look too good. <laughs> I went into the you know, first day in the car park. It wasn't a good sight. <laughs> Again, it's changed a lot. I wouldn't want uh, anyone at Bosch to be hearing this and upset. But look, let's face it, 22 years ago or 25 years ago, my goodness, 25 years ago, it was a sort of emerging in Australia as a high-end blue-collar profession, really. It was very different to what it is now. And I looked around and there were section managers who were in charge of hundreds of millions of dollars of business, probably on, on 70 or 80K. And you, know, that, and you could see that in, in the car park. Yes. And so my first day, I thought, goodness me, this is not good. Why these people not being paid properly? I know other people are making a fortune from what they do. I'm not playing that game. And I could see automotive was in a spiral as well. They had a business model. Well, the automotive industry had a, a business model really that relied on pushing their suppliers to the brink. And so the suppliers, uh, you know, their idea of innovation was to do whatever you did last year, this year, but for 5% less price. You know, so that, that was crazy. It created a really uh, vacuous environment. So that was another key reason. I, I knew we were, I used to say, engineering is a photosynthesis of wealth creation. You know, we're the ones that take time, sunlight, and beer and turn it into money. So why should all these other people then go and make far more money than we do off our incredible talent? And that really, really annoyed me. So that's the other thing. No, I'm going to go create something that's really worthwhile. 
I want to have a bigger piece of it. And I want the other engineers around me to have a bigger piece of that too. And that was a really a, a very big driver. And I look at our car park today, makes me very happy. I would have been a very happy student walking into the car park if it looked like ours does, and that makes me proud. And, and my car is 10 years old, by the way. It's not about <laughs> It's uh, some of the other engineers. It's uh, fantastic. Fantastic, fantastic. I mean, a lot of young people have aspirations to do something like that, but not so many have the courage to take those steps. You make it sound simple, which it obviously wasn't. Can you recall the day when you, you first took your initial step and what was going through your mind at that point? Yeah, look, a couple of clear thoughts. One was best time to do it is when you're young. I didn't even have a credit card at that point. I was at university, had an old car, no mortgage, no partner, and no credit card. I thought, look, if it doesn't go anywhere, I've really got nothing to lose. And I managed to borrow a little bit of money. I mean, it was only $10,000, but that was enough to buy a few things and get going. And the other thing I realized is that don't overthink it. Think of the next step and just do it. Because after you do that, there'll be another step. And then you just do that and keep doing that. Before you know it, you've got some momentum and you're away. So the first step was, well, I better incorporate it. So I spoke to a very bemused accountant who said, yeah, okay. Well, I said, you remember 25 years ago, there was no startup culture. Young kid hadn't even finished university. I'm going to start this company. They were, yes, they're very polite. So I incorporated it. And the next thing you know, that leads to a name. You have to find a name. So, you know, it just sort of fit. So that... That's pretty simple advice. Just do something. Uh, sometimes there's a time to lift your eyes to the hills and sometimes there's a time to just look at your feet and make sure you take another step. And so I just did that. We just took another step. And then you can stop and look up and get strategic again. But take those little steps because I think it's a lot of people get caught up in the big picture and never move forward. Brilliant advice. Out of interest, what was the purpose of the name? What was the meaning behind the name? It's my middle name. Oh, right. Yeah, Jefferson Gray Harcourt, you know, I mean, goodness me. The surname was useless. There's no castle, uh, you know, no, <laughs> no family trust. So the, well, that's, you know, that's no good. I'll try the middle name. And uh, I kind of liked it. You know, it's, uh, it's simple. It wasn't a catchy, quirky name. You know, it wasn't transistor innovation or something that, that they were all calling uh, MC Squared or the sort of, you know, a lot of, a lot of techie names. Just a, just a name. And uh, I thought, though, I mean, I'll never get it because there was Gray Advertising which was a huge global brand. So I thought, well, I better stick something after that. And right. so I tacked on innovation. I just tacked it on there. Well, no <laughs> one was talking about it. Just, uh, it's almost embarrassing now. It's everywhere. But we know it, it was just tacked on the end, grey innovation, and uh, that's how it happened. And then you just made it happen. Yeah. Absolutely. 22-year overnight success. Brilliant. What was the biggest turning point, Jefferson, which helped to progress your career? Well, I guess, David, you know, they say that hard things are forged in fire. So... Starting grey was relatively straightforward. I got some contracts and off we went. It wasn't until we got in big trouble in 2003, 2004. In Hong Kong, we were having a lot of fun. We decided to develop a games console, Linux-based games console called Digiblast. You can Google it. We became runner-up toy of the year in Europe. We had three of the largest toy distributors around, you know, Vivid, Josie Preziosi, Nico. We had something like seven or eight major content titles, Dora the Explorer, SpongeBob, and games as well, all in multiple languages, which we couldn't speak, which turned out <laughs> to create a, I'll give you some stories about lip-syncing SpongeBob in Spanish and Dutch at three in the morning. But And, yeah, we delivered, actually delivered, but for commercial reasons, uh, you know, really bad commercial reasons. I mean, the business was effectively sabotaged to try and take control of that. Uh, we fell over, not completely, but I certainly was pretty much down and out. I thought that was the end of Grey and 
uh, we'd only had a success up to that point. I had 55 staff, we had to go back to eight. It was a tough time, really tough time. And, of course, when you're going through those things, you don't know where the bottom is. You come in every Monday and you get some, some of the guys and girls are saying, sorry, Jefferson, I've had to go somewhere else. I just don't know how it's going to go here. But yeah, I don't blame you. I couldn't leave, of course. There were all sorts of personal guarantees as well. But I didn't know how we were going to go. And it was a very, very tough time. And I did a lot of reading. I was looking for advice everywhere. And it's amazing. Every, every book I picked up on anyone in business, from Rupert Murdoch or uh, you name it, they have hit the wall, of course, and come back. And the message was always, you, know, you come back quickly. Just don't give up. And so just kept chipping away. And you know, we bounced back within about you know, 18 months and paid off everyone, the government. I mean, we paid every cent. We, apart from to myself, of course, I had a few back wages, but that's okay. You know, and that, that was something else. I didn't want to run away from responsibility. I didn't want to phoenix the business or anything like that. But that journey taught me what I was capable of personally, taught me how quickly you can bounce back from that sort of adversity. It taught me a very important lesson that when you build anything, you build two things. You build the thing you're building and you build a fence around it too. Because if you're building something fantastic, which of course we all are, well, why build if you can steal? We'd forgotten to build the fence. And I, it was pretty easy to lose something if you don't lock it up. So that was a huge lesson. And of course, just some personal development and confidence and just in life in general. So I wouldn't want to do that again, I have to say, but it's certainly, if there was a defining moment, that was it. And it's amazing. I was still you know, really emotionally devastated by what was happening. I felt like a failure. I was embarrassed. And a friend of mine said to me, um, hey, look at this mess. Look at it. You set up a business in Hong Kong. You did deal with this guy, Dutchman, and you've got all this stuff going on and runner-up toy of the year, 125,000 units, by the way, we shipped. Wow, that's impressive. First order, yeah, and it all blew up. I said, that's a good mess. You know, in fact, that's the best mess I've seen, Jefferson. Only you could make a mess that big. And therefore, <laughs> if you can make that, you can get out of it. And yeah. I went home and sort of slept on it. And in the morning, I woke up proud of my mess. And that was incredible because my mind had pivoted from shame to just being able to deal with it and then being okay with it and then actually looking at it objectively and from that point on, I knew it was okay. Just that exercise of how powerful our mind is, Yes, how you can pivot on a position and have a completely different view. That was uh, amazing stuff. During that period, did you doubt yourself? Of course. <laughs> I don't think it's healthy to, but I know I really... Uh, it was very tough. And also, it's a lonely time. It's an embarrassing time. It's, uh, you know, it's people, people suicide over these sorts of things. I was sure. certainly nowhere near there. But, you know, there's a lot of pressure. And I think for people who are employees, and, and I love my stuff, and it's very important. And I enjoyed being an employee. But just spare a thought sometimes for the people who are buffering the horrible, harsh reality of business, whether there are no OHS laws, there's no anti bullying laws, there's no nothing. You know, you. you you get wiped out, you're out, and you're often saddled with debt that survives the death of the business as well, you know, so it can really wipe you out. It can get pretty lonely at the top. Yeah, yeah. So, look, that was a hell of an experience, but as I say, that was by far the definitive thing that set us up as a business and, and me up to go forward in life. Did you do business in Hong Kong again after that? Yeah, and China, we're doing business, US, Europe, New Zealand, Hong Kong was a wonderful city, very, very exciting. You know, and Singapore, we were over there. Hong Kong back in the day was really special and just very uh, mercantile. You know? it, yes. I remember we were having dinner one night 
about five of us sitting down having this wonderful dinner and someone mentioned that they were thinking of buying a camera and within about 10 minutes the guy turns up with about five different cameras you know it's like what a place what a go-getting culture can do attitude yeah absolutely exciting exciting are there any resources that have really helped you along the journey yes industry groups have been really important for us and when i left the automotive sphere and got into medical devices which is really where i felt that the best synergy was so it wasn't so much about money it was Doctors and engineers, I think, have a really good relationship. A lot of engineers want to be doctors. A lot of doctors are frustrated engineers. <laughs> so they kind of appreciate each other. And there's, yeah, there's huge synergy when they work together. So that was really why I wanted to get into medical devices. And, of course, we stood to probably be more financially secure than in automotive things, that truth. So I joined Ozbiotech as an industry group and met a lot of good people, started going to conferences, started presenting at those conferences. Those Industry groups, and there's a number of them now, BioMelbourne, and Health, Ausbiotech, of course, AusMedTech, really good for people to get into, build the network. So that was very helpful indeed. Having a strong network is critical. Yes. There are uh, so many areas of expertise now, things are so specialised. You need a wide cohort of uh, experience really to do to do most things. And uh, there's always that you know, unknown, unknown too. It's you, you might think you know something or just be unaware of uh, how things perhaps could go wrong or perhaps opportunities that are there that you didn't realise either. So just getting out there and talking, helpful. And also for, you know, I was quite shy as a young engineer. Helps you get out of your shell. That and the beers, of course. <laughs> Whatever it takes. So, yeah. But having diversity in your network has also been very important for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because it's not all engineering. You, know? it's, yeah. you might meet someone who uh, has a completely... Well, we have a business called Tali that's in childhood developmental delay. It's very, very different to the sorts of things I studied. Universities, particularly the university, say the commercialisation office, they are, or they have uh, technology challenges where they're wanting to get industry engaged with their students. That's a, another very good way to uh, just meet people and I guess realise how you can apply your, your discipline in different fields that you may not have been aware of. Have you had many mentors along the way? And if so, how did they help you? I haven't had formal mentors, and I'm not suggesting that's a good thing. I just haven't got around to it. I certainly have mentors who perhaps don't know that they're a mentor to me, and uh, I will seek them out and draw as much knowledge and experience as I can. They're very, very important. Sometimes things, I think if you have a, a well-rounded ego, you know, you're going to blame yourself for things that perhaps you shouldn't. Perhaps you think you're doing something wrong. And it's very refreshing to, to talk to someone who you see as a, you know, so far advanced from where you are and you start to talk about what, you've, what you're going through and they say, oh, look, you know, that, that is my biggest gripe too. This is what happened to me. And, you know, there's some real comfort in knowing that other people are going through or have gone through what you've gone through. Not necessarily by age, but it often is. You know, these are our elders. This is the, you know, we, we're human beings. We rely on ancestry and wisdom, and we don't, we kind of lost that, you know, and uh, that's really important. We're continually evolving. Yeah, well, the nuclear family, very aptly named, but it blew up the village. And we village yeah. people. We, we used to have our, our wise elders and all these people around us. And now we're kind of uh, sitting there behind Slack thinking that we're tapping information out in, in text and we lose that incredible richness of experience that the village has and wants to share. And definitely go and uh, seek out any experience. from uh, It could be a formal mentor. It could just be someone who you just like hanging around. and That can be an unofficial one as well. I've asked 
to act as a mentor. And frankly, mm-hmm. I don't really know what that means. I tried. I'm not sure. <laughs> did a very good job. But, you know, it's an important part of development. Sure. Did you do much postgrad studies? I haven't done any. Not to say I wouldn't want to. I'd love to sit down and really focus on something again. And I am thinking about it. But no, I haven't. I've worked with many people who have. And it's certainly, uh, you know, it's not for everyone, but it's important to, again, just adds to the specialization and capability in that certain area. Obviously, you may get more narrow, but I've got an our CEO, Dr. Peter Meikle, is running the business very successfully. You know, his background was mechanical engineering and he did wind turbines. Well, we don't have any turbines around here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he jokes about it, so I can, I can talk about it. But he, uh, you know, went on and did some very good deals in business. And just because you do postgrad doesn't mean you're going to be stuck as a specialist. But no, I think anything that uh, exercises your, your mind like that is, is a good thing. Are you involved in much personal development yourself, Jefferson? I am, at the moment, just consumed by what we're doing in a good way. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. think that provides a lot of personal development because we're building a, a venture fund at the moment, for example. So, you know, I'm working with a whole bunch of finance guys and just getting into an area that I've never dabbled in before. And I think business is rich with diverse areas for personal development. But, you know, I've got two long service leaves owing, David, so <laughs> I probably... Uh, yeah. I don't think you're ever going to take them, though, uh, are you? So uh, there's probably a, a long list of things that I could do a bit more personally, but that's all right. Uh, you know, this is a lot of fun here and very, yeah. very interesting. That we just get to do the most bizarre things, you know, and I, that's another great thing about being an engineer. You, you get to get paid to blow things up. We blew up a caravan a couple of years ago for our bomb <laughs> detection stuff. You know, he gets to do that legally. <laughs> Your passion comes across very strongly. It would seem to me you're very result-focused, driven by outcomes. And once you succeed, you want to get onto the next challenge. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but you have to follow it to the end as well. I think the world's littered with people who like to start things, but, you know, and I do like to start things, but we like to finish them as well, and I like to finish yeah. them. We uh, have a little party in the office this afternoon because we've shipped the final ventilator. So, you know, we party at the end. And, uh, Congratulations. Thank you. That's brilliant. Brilliant. How many How many is that then? Oh, the contract was uh, a couple of contracts uh, for about 2,200. So quite an amazing effort and about 50 companies involved, 350 people. We just pulled together from different groups. 800 plus, I think 850 documents submitted to the TGA in uh, FUA, you know, crazy stuff. You'd be mad to do it. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> but incredibly satisfying, such a rewarding project to be involved in and, mm. and, and driving. I mean, this is helping people. This is life and death stuff. Yeah, and it also serves to demonstrate to government and to investors that, look, this capability is here. Yeah. I don't think they realise I was talking to, I did a radio interview and I was asked, uh, how did we find companies who could repurpose around a ventilator? You know, and the question was, did I find a, you know, a washing machine company that could make a ventilator part? I was offended. I, washing, <laughs> as much as washing machines are amazing, these companies are making the tail fin for F-35 fighters. You know, people just don't realise what we do here. The ones who are busy doing it generally don't get out there and talk about it, as I did not either. You know, the reason I've come out and started talking more is because it was put to me that I should, because otherwise the void is filled with people talking who really aren't doing it, not from the ground up, not 
from the coalface and not taking the risk. They might facilitate others, but, you know, we need to build industry from doing, not talking. And do you think, Jefferson, that it will have a lasting impact on local manufacturing or advanced manufacturing in, in Victoria, in Australia? The ventilator program? Yes. Look, I, I think uh, it's a, it really was a one-off opportunity, but it does have a tail to it, and we're working hard to make sure that that tail of interest is now repurposed to a sustainable yep. things. But you look in the federal budget, there's a lot, and, and even at state level, there's a lot of investment now, a lot of support in manufacturing, in uh, collaboration. I think that it, it's definitely helped. Sovereign supply risk was something else that came out of COVID. And the fact that we're able to produce something of this complexity so quickly does indicate, again, to government that perhaps they should trust us more as an industry. I mean, government are stuck. You can't blame them. They've got a duty of care to make sure that they spend taxpayers' dollar correctly and that they don't buy things that aren't going to be delivered or won't work. And so you can't blame them for buying an IBM, you know, but uh, sometimes we have to take a punt. So hopefully this gives them a bit more comfort. Absolutely. You mentioned the experience in Hong Kong. Can you think of another really tough challenge in your career and how did you overcome it? Obviously, plenty of them. Would the ventilator project be one of them? Or? Oh, no, I'll give you, um, I'll give you the ventilator program, apart from being a huge amount of work, you know, we had such clear vision on what to do that it actually was fun, but I, I won't say it was a tough challenge. It was, it was a lot of work, but you know, we knew from the start how to do it. That's how we got it. There was no tender for this. People think there was a contract and we won it. Nope. It was a call to the government saying, the Vic government saying everyone's talking about trying to help. This is why those well-intentioned efforts won't work for these reasons. This will, and we can do it. Yeah, you know what? That makes sense. Go for it, and uh, the rest went from there. But no, I think uh, look one of the uh, one of the ongoing challenges, and again goes back to creating something of value, is that when you do that, people are always going to try and muscle in, or take it away, or push you out. And I think hopefully this resonates with someone listening at the moment that you know we forget that as a creative person who can create something from nothing that there's half of society who can't. Now it's like the herbivores and the carnivores. You know the herbivores, it's all there. They just eat grass and they, they, they're fine. The carnivores, as much as they might not want to, they have to eat us, right? They have to eat the herbivores. <laughs> we got no choice. We might even be friends. I always imagine this crazy scenario of the African savanna, you know, where all the animals are talking. They're kind of friends, you know. And when you watch a documentary uh, and you see that, no one's running around. It's not like a bloodbath. The, the lions are over here. The gazelles are over there. And they're all kind of getting along. And yeah, every now and again it happens. But, but so imagine they're all sort of talking, you know. It's like, hey, Bob, hey, Dave, and uh, you know, <laughs> how are the kids? And eventually, you know, the lion walks up to the gazelle and says, Bob, you mean, I'm, I'm really sorry, buddy. We've been friends for, for a while, but uh, the, the kids need braces. The wife's on the back. <laughs> Just got to eat you, man. I'm really, you know, I don't like it anymore. Either. So you can actually get quite close to people in business who you get along with for a long time, actually, but at some point something happens. You might not even be aware of it, but they just start thinking about eating what you're doing because they can never create it. You've got to be careful. And that's a constant, you know, once you justify something in your mind, especially if you've got a bit of a narcissist or something, you can pretty easily quite quickly get to the point that they could run it better or they're doing it a favour. So the key thing is having the focus. Well. Having the destination in mind. Well, again, you know, build the fence. But what does the fence yeah. look like? You know, I've sat on boards where I've started the business and hired 
people on the boards and uh, bought in all the money and built the tech. And still, you know, so the first thing is you'll be typecast as a first year engineer. You say, well, hang on, I, I built this business and I hired all you guys. And don't tell me I don't know how to do this. Then if that doesn't work, maybe as a founder, oh, the founder's reacting, can't let go. So, well, I'd love to let go, but, you know, you guys haven't raised any money yet. You haven't demonstrated that you really understand business or whatever, you know. So it's a, it's a constant uh, challenge. And very easily the business can be blown up. That's happened in the past. And then it's easy for that to be blamed on you know, the founder for not building it correctly or whatever. You know, these boards will go on and do other things. And so that's, you know, that is a constant challenge. We're getting better at it. Uh, but don't ever let anyone tell you as an engineer that because you are able to get your head around technical things that you're therefore somehow unable to do other things, mm. you know, that you're not commercial or that you, you know, because that's just utter nonsense. And you look at, say, Businesses like Motorola, which were, you know, destroyed by the third generation of family, the first two were engineers. They loved the technology. Very good in business, very good in technology and passion. They could talk to their team and inspire, really loved that business. And the third generation, Harvard MBA, whole thing blown up in a matter of years. So uh, that's a very common tale. So that's something that I find mm. constant challenge, David, and something that, uh, again, I've spoken to other people, not just in engineering, but in, in other businesses, you know, large businesses, where they've built those things and they say they hire these boards and the first thing they do is come in and tell you everything you're doing wrong and, you know, try to muss you out, not to help you, but to try and take what you've built. So something mm. to be aware of can be very, very uh, exhausting. But, hey, still here. Anything is possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Landing rockets backwards. <laughs> for a hundredth the price of NASA. Yeah, yeah. If there was something you look back at and wish you'd known when you'd started your career, what might that be? Get a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're not joking either. No, and it's no. funny. Uh, I, I was on a course selection committee. I keep saying, well, can we just do one, students do one, just one lecture on the law just to know to get a lawyer? Because how many contracts do we sign in our lives, even if you're not in business? You know, you're first thing you leave uni, you sign an employment contract, you get a house, you know, you're constantly signing contracts. We're under the, under the rule of law, and yet we will study maths we'll never use, or most of us, but you don't get to do even one lecture on basic contract law to make you aware of it enough to know that you don't know much and you should get a lawyer. So, of course, I ran off and started my business, and I didn't even realise, I can't believe it now, it's been embarrassing. But I didn't even, you know, have, I knew about purchase orders, but I didn't have the right sort of contracts and agreements in place. And, you know, I learned the hard way all the way through. And so, you know, I, I, and we see it as a negative thing as well. And say, get a lawyer, we think about getting sued. Not at all. It's just, it makes life a lot easier. And when you're that ambitious, excited, optimistic entrepreneur wanting to leap out into the world, you know, and do the thing that you want to do, it's, it's really far from your mind, as it should be. That's why it's just a little reminder. Just go and have a chat to a lawyer. You don't need to go to a big corporate, but just get the get the basics because there are people out there who aren't nice and it will make your life a lot easier. That's great advice. Having that awareness yeah. is so important. Yeah. Being able to pivot and create solutions to changing demands is clearly a strength of yours. Jefferson, how do you do this so effectively? How do you do it so well? Management. Management and process, which I actually like. I never thought I'd like it. But I get off on the um, intellectual aspect of being able to have 
absolute clarity around what's going on and how things are tracking. So over the years, we've invested and just constantly refined how we do things here. And we've got live flat panel screens of all our project issues, Gantt charts, everything is just there. And we have the structure in place to communicate as best we can. So it means that we can take on new things very quickly. And when the ventilator thing started with Smith's Medical, you know, Smith's with the licensor. So once we signed, uh, they dumped, I think, you know, let's say 8,000 documents in a data room. <laughs> 8,000? Something like that. Wow. I know, but it was a lot. I mean, it was a lot. Yeah. And, of course, drawings, test boxes. By the way, when you make a ventilator, you're not just making the ventilator. You've got test boxes. We have nearly 100 of them testing every part and then every sub-assembly and then every assembly. Those boxes had to be built as well. The drawings weren't always fully up to date, you know, those things happen. So just dealing with a lot of information in an effective way, good management, experience management. It's funny, you know, the, the name of the business is Grey, but we've all got grey hair. And all of us, is <laughs> some young ones in here, but that's important as well. A good rounded distribution yep. of age. So senior people on just calmly structuring the teams and all this information, working out what our plan was, what our priorities are, and just calmly getting into it and i think that's how we did this effectively and you know we didn't have ego about what we wanted to do we knew that there's plenty of things we don't do it's about finding the people who do do it do it well and asking them to come in and be a part of the team and uh, just making sure that they had all the things they needed to do to deliver and we knew what to do once they delivered to get that on to the next stage and really just managing it like a symphony you're the conductor yeah well Eight conductors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you make it sound straightforward. It's not. It's not at all. And it's a great skill to have. We spoke initially when you were a young boy and you were interested in making things. Do you think you had this clarity in your head from an early age? Or? No, no. I just wanted to blow stuff up. Like, there was no, you know, pull it apart and blow it up. No, there was no, no Gantt charts back then. From the moment I started grade, I always had very nice planning documentations. I just think it's professional and it gives you a framework and a basis to justify why things cost what they cost. I mean, my biggest issue in the services days when we used to sell our time essentially to clients who wanted something done is we always fall off their chair at the price. But, you know, with the right information, the right material, I could go through and explain, right, well, this is how we arrive at that. These are all the things we need to do. And, you know, people often weren't aware of that. So the ones who could be convinced would become our clients and uh, the ones who wouldn't, would not. But I don't think I've ever seen anyone who said no actually come out the other end, you know, because we were showing really the bare minimum of what you need to get done, done. Fantastic. What do you see the future for engineering? and advanced manufacturing in Australia, Jefferson? I think it's never been a better time. When I was at uni, the TV shows were LA Law. You know, they used to have like drama series about lawyers sitting in corner offices talking about well, having all these romances and so on, and uh, they were the heroes. I think that's, uh, thank goodness that that's behind us, not to disparage lawyers at all, but that's not the reality, certainly not my experience of the reality of lawyers. So, uh, but what we do is relevant and it's never been more relevant. We've got an economy in Australia that needs to smarten up and everyone knows it. You know, we still sell a lot of dirt on South Korean made ships. That's not good. And uh, yeah, our days of the lucky country are coming to an end if we don't mm. smart up. So we're needed. And I think the other thing that has come through is that there are, you know, the heroes, you know, the, the big houses now, you know, being owned by the 
the wealthy engineers, the industrialists now are the engineers, all the, the technical people. That's wonderful. So what a great time. Do you think there'll be a TV show? Oh, there are. There are. But maybe not in our office. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think look, there's documentaries everywhere. There's all sorts of stuff. Yes. Yes. People are excited. I think society has evolved now to the point that building something, creating something, doing something useful, just being useful has an attraction and an allure to it. And there are many, there are so many things yet to be done. Yes. And ultimately rewarding and, and very sustainable. Yeah. I mean, look, we're just scratching the surface with medical devices. It's been a human healthcare has been almost entirely pharmaceutical for so long. So medical devices are only in their infancy as to what they can do, telemedicine and so on. The environment is falling apart. We need to manage our resources so much better. That's through technology, of course. We're literally talking about exploring the planets. The move to, you know, away from traditional fuel sources, it's hydrogen, there's the electrification of machines, vehicles, everything. That's, that's exciting stuff. The best days lie ahead. Yeah. Again, don't just focus on the engineering bit. You know, use that degree. Use the fact that you know your brain works. Get into mm. anything you want to do. People understand now, I think, that engineers are good assets to have anywhere. I wish there were more of them in Canberra. <laughs> Imagine COVID managed by a team of engineers. I'll tell you what, I'll take that island any day. What a great point. You're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, which island do you want? The engineer island or the uh, politician island? I mean, maybe you go over there for parties, but we can party. We can party. That's right. That's for sure. That's for sure. Jefferson, you've been really generous with your time and it's been fantastic listening to your story and, and your observations. So I've got one final question, sure. which I guess is a bit of a sort of summary. So could you please offer some advice that you could give a young person potentially wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? In engineering or in starting a business or... Uh, in both, in both, in engineering, but also for somebody who's got that same aspiration and drive that you had when you were working at Bosch and you saw the car park, et cetera. What advice would you have for those young people? Be an optimist. You know, my first day at Bosch, I was, as I mentioned, pretty upset about the car park. I was not impressed either with the... Um, attire from the students I was replacing who were in ripped tracksuit pants and a T-shirt. And I was in, I dressed up, I had a tie on and they were laughing at me going, what are you wearing a tie for? I was upset about that. The, the cafeteria at lunchtime was just a bit more icing on the cake with the, the slop. And I was thinking, this is not for me at all. And I got home and thought about it, that, well, you know, you're here. And, uh, and then I went back and looked at it the next day. And this is amazing. What, a, what an opportunity. All this stuff happening here to learn from, you know, it's right in front of you. Suck it up, draw it in, take all the bits that you like. Don't worry about the bits you don't like. And uh, I love that year. It was a defining year for me uh, there. So be an optimist, look at the things, take every opportunity you can to draw and explore. And in terms of starting a business or starting it, spinning out a company, it's never been easier to do that. But I'd also suggest if I had my time again, I might stay in the corporate world. You can do a lot in there too. I mean, there, you can make a lot of money inside a corporate if that's your thing. You can also do a lot you know, because you've got all those resources around you too. So don't just be limited to thinking you have to start your own business. But if you want to do it, go and join perhaps some of the uh, Oz Biotech, Oz MedTech. There's a lot of more. Or Ant Health. There are great incubators and other groups around to support you. Go and uh, spend some time there build your network and uh, bounce around your ideas. None of those resources existed when I was going, and if they had, I think it would have helped us tremendously. Yes. So it's a great time, so go and do it. Be optimistic, go for it. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, Just like you did. So, uh, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> what a great way to end. 
Jefferson, it's been tremendous listening to you. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Jefferson Harcourt, driver, owner, founder, great innovation group of companies. Thanks very much. Thanks, Simon. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast episode of Engineering Career Journeys. Please like, subscribe and provide feedback. Australia-wide engineering recruitment can be found at australiawide.com.au or on our LinkedIn page. We look forward to presenting more interviews with interesting engineers shortly.